Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. In the second message of the Cultivate series, Pastor Rob explains what a disciple is and three fundamental things that disciples do. Let's join Pastor Rob now as he begins with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come into your presence, how comforting it is to be in your presence. How centering, how life-giving it is. God, as we come into your presence, we come with questions. God, when we're completely transparent, we come into with a, a sense of contentment. At times, God, we come into your presence with a sense of curiosity, just wanting to know more. God, would you stir in our lives and stir in our hearts today? God, would you do something new in us, and would you do something new through us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we continue our series of messages called Cultivate, where we're exploring the idea full valley engagement cultivates disciples who impact our world for Christ. We began last week with the concept of impact, of impacting our world for Christ. And this week, we are moving to the concept of disciples. And we begin with a question today, and that question is Very simple and very difficult all at the same time. Is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? Is there a difference between a Christian and a disciple? I'm sure some of us think of it a little bit in the same way that we think of the difference between Chevrolet and Cadillac. They're very similar, aren't they? They're both General Motors brands. They share some of the same vehicle platform and a lot of the same vehicle components. And yet, as similar as they are, they are still somewhat different from one another. In the General Motors family of brands, Chevrolet is the bread and butter brand. They make everything from entry-level vehicles all the way up to elite sports cars. The bread and butter brand. But then there's Cadillac. It's the luxury brand. And as we think about Chevrolet and Cadillac, are we understanding the difference between a Christian and a disciple? Is a Christian like Chevrolet, the bread and butter brand of following Jesus? And is a disciple like Cadillac, the luxury brand of following Jesus? Well, as we think about it, in our culture, we can have a very minimalistic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, for demographers... Let's be blunt, right? It comes down to checking a box on a form. In 2019, the Pew Research Center published a study whereby 65% of all Americans claim to be Christians. But like, what even does that mean, right? Like if 65% of Americans are claiming to be Christian, what does that mean? Like, I yes, God, or something? It, It doesn't mean much, clearly. That is, in some ways, a minimalistic definition of what it is to be a Christian. But then as we think about the term disciple, and we associate it with Jesus' 12 disciples, that becomes a lofty, almost unapproachable definition of following Jesus. I mean, we know that all of Jesus' followers in the New Testament were called disciples 
But then there were those 12 disciples. They were the ones who were closest to Jesus. Jesus spent the most time training them. He sent them on missions. We read about them working miracles. And when we call them the 12 disciples, that becomes our picture of what a disciple is. Now, Jesus called those 12 the 12 apostles, the 12 ones that he has sent. But when the 12 disciples become our benchmark for understanding what it means to be a disciple, then that creates a very lofty, almost unapproachable set of expectations for us. I mean, unless we find ourselves understanding Jesus on the level that they did, and unless we find ourselves traveling and and multiplying churches as they did, and unless we find ourselves endowed with some type of miraculous power or authority, then we question, are we really disciples? If the 12 apostles are the benchmark, that is a very lofty and unapproachable feeling, definition of disciple. So as you think about yourself, do you think of yourself as a Christian or as a disciple? Well, interestingly, Jesus calls everyone who follows him his disciples. Now, the term Christian is a very ancient term. In fact, it shows up in the book of Acts for the first time. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we read that it was in Antioch the first time that Christians were referred to by that title. Acts eleven twenty-six reads, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So it shows up very early in the New Testament. But what we find is that the term disciple is an even older, more ancient term. The term disciple refers to someone who has chosen a leader. And then that person who has chosen a leader learns from that leader and then emulates that leader and ultimately continues on the work of that leader. Well, if that's what a disciple is, then we find Jesus from the very get-go calling people to be his disciples. In Mark chapter 1, we read Jesus calling Simon and his brother Andrew, and and this is what the call says. In Mark 1.17, we read, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You see, Jesus is calling Andrew and Simon to be his disciples. And from that point forward, all of Jesus' followers in the New Testament are referred to as disciples. And when Jesus gives his parting instructions to us, his people, the church, he commands us to make and multiply disciples. In his great commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so Jesus is calling us all his disciples. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are disciples. And so if Jesus uses this term for us, we recognize that we've gotten that distinction wrong. Christian is not like the bread and butter brand of following Jesus, and disciple is not the luxury upgraded brand of following Jesus. We are all disciples of Jesus. And if we're all disciples of Jesus... If that's the term Jesus uses for us, then we really want to understand what it means to be a disciple. More importantly than understanding it, we want to live out who Jesus has said we are, and we want to do what it is that Jesus has told us to do. And so as we seek to understand disciples today, 
We want to come away with a robust picture of what Jesus expects of us. And we begin by saying that disciples know who Jesus is. Disciples know who Jesus is. Let's set the scene as we approach Matthew chapter 16. Now, for most of Jesus' early ministry, he did that in the region of Galilee, fairly close to the Sea of Galilee. But what we find eventually is that Jesus ventures north into more Gentile lands, and he goes there to proclaim good news and to teach his disciples lessons. On one such trip, Jesus took his disciples to the city of Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon near the headwaters of the Jordan River. And it's there in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, that Jesus asks his disciples who the crowds were saying he was. And we come to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so we discover the answer that the disciples give to the question, who do the crowds say that I am? And we find that the crowds basically think that Jesus is one of the great prophets of old, come back to life. Some say that he's John the Baptist, the first century preacher, come back to life. One of the Herods had executed John the Baptist. And in Jesus, that Herod and others like him thought they saw the ministry of John the Baptist again. Perhaps Jesus was simply John the Baptist come back to life. The Old Testament ended with the expectation that before Messiah comes, we would see once again Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Some people thought perhaps Jesus was Elijah the prophet returned from the dead. But whether he was John the Baptist, Elijah, or another prophet, the crowds had concluded that Jesus was a great prophet come from God. And having established what the crowds thought, Jesus then turns to his own disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? Because you see, this is not a public opinion poll Jesus is conducting here. What he fundamentally wants to know is who his disciples think he is and what they will do because of what they think. That's the point at which Simon steps forward, ever the eager and outspoken apostle, and he says what's on his mind. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, this is so good. God has shown this to you. This is based on faith. You see, Simon wasn't simply more insightful than the other disciples. And the evidence that Jesus was the Son of God was sitting out there already and had been proclaimed, but it was not yet understood and apprehended by people. And so Jesus is not saying, Simon, you're more insightful, you're cleverer than anyone else. What he's saying to him is, Simon, this is amazing because God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has given you the faith to see this, to comprehend it, to understand it, and now to confess it. It out loud. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A confession of faith made by Simon Peter through the power of God given to him. This is a reminder to us that 
Our faith may involve questions from time to time, but questions cannot be the end for us. Of course, our faith in God brings up questions from time to time. We all have questions from time to time about our faith. As we make our way through life, we run into question-raising experiences. We hurt, we suffer, we see people around us hurt, and we see people around us suffering. And when we hurt and suffer, we turn to God with questions. And when we turn to God with questions seeking understanding, when something is beyond our ability to comprehend, we are not the first ones. People in the Bible turn to God with questions. But as we examine what happened here with Simon, we have to understand that while we have questions about our faith, our faith cannot be consistently tentative. There are foundational truths to our faith. And those foundational truths, if we question them constantly, are always shifting, always unstable, always rumbling underneath us. And when our faith is rumbling underneath us, we have no place to stand. But here we see the example of Simon Peter. Simon Peter, through the gift of faith, steps forward and makes a bold confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which says to us that while we will have questions about our faith, there are certain fundamental truths of our faith that we need to solidify and understand and confess openly because disciples know who Jesus is. Beyond that, disciples rely on Jesus' power. Disciples rely on Jesus' power. You see, Jesus continued speaking to Simon in verse 18, and he continues by saying, And I tell you, Simon, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Simon is this disciple's given name, but Jesus says, Your name from now on is also going to be Peter. And Peter in Greek means the rock. And then Jesus says, I am going to build my church on this rock. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to build his church on the faith that is similar to the faith that Peter has expressed and on the confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He's not saying, I'm going to build my church personally on your work and your ministry, Peter. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that as God gives the gift of faith through the Holy Spirit to his people, that faith and our own confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is going to be the faith upon which the church is built. And Jesus goes on to add that when we have faith like that, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Which is an interesting thing for Jesus to say, given the likelihood that he was standing, probably, at the base of Mount Hermon in the shadow of the sanctuary of Pan. You see, at the base of Mount Hermon, there was a cave. And in very ancient times, a river welled up from underground and came out of the mouth of that cave. As the ancients tried to plumb the depths of that cave, they couldn't find the bottom. It was simply too deep. And they couldn't explain the water that was welling up from inside. And so they built a place of worship there where they worshiped their local gods. 
When the Greeks and later the Romans came through, they too were awed and amazed by this place. And so they built a sanctuary, a large, ultimately complex of sanctuaries to their god Pan. And because this this cave, this water, seemed to come up from the underworld, they considered this a gate, a, a pathway to the underworld. They considered it literally a gateway to hell. And it became a prominent place of worship for them. And in all likelihood, that's the place where Jesus was standing when he made the statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Now, that's a dramatic, dramatic change from the way that we think. Because what we find here is that Jesus is putting his disciples not on the defensive, but on the offensive. Now, as we read and we think about this passage, frequently we have a defensive picture in mind. We hear this passage through our experience of living the Christian life and feeling at times attacked by the world and attacked by evil. And we read it through the lens that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, thinking that evil is coming against us, but as evil comes against us, it will never destroy us. That's a defensive picture of the gates of hell not prevailing against us. But that doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus views the situation at all. Jesus doesn't seem to view the powers of evil as coming against us and threatening to destroy us. Instead, he sees us going against the powers of evil themselves. And we know this because a gate is not an offensive weapon. Has anyone ever tried to beat you down with a gate? A gate is not an offensive weapon. A gate is a defensive weapon seeking to keep someone else out. What Jesus is seeming to indicate here is that his people are on the offensive against the powers of evil in this world. We are the ones storming the fortresses of evil. And he says the gates that seek to restrain us from storming the fortresses of evil will not prevail against us. We will break them down and we will take the forces of evil. He's putting his people on the offensive. This is important for us to recognize because at times we get a picture of our faith and think that that faith is purely a private thing for us. We have convictions, and we keep those convictions to ourselves, and those convictions comfort us and help us to make our way through life. But here's the truth of the matter. Our faith is in Jesus, who is the Christ, the the sent one of God, the Messiah of God, our risen Lord, the one who is victorious over sin and death and evil, and the one who is coming again to make the world as it is into the world as it should be. Our faith is in the risen Christ who has conquered sin and death and evil. Our faith can't be a private thing that merely helps us to make our way through life. Our faith is in Jesus who is powerful and who calls us to live publicly. And this is critically important because we still live in the shadow of the sanctuary of Pan. Just as realistically as the people of the first century did, the sanctuary of Pan symbolized to them empire and violence and false god. And we live in the shadow of empires today. Some of those empires are political, seeking to assert their will over us. 
Some of those empires are economic, seeking to take things from us. And some of those empires are philosophical, seeking to impose their way of looking at the world on us. We live in the shadow of empires today. And we live in the shadow of violence. Violence is a part of our world. We experience it in a very real and visceral way from time to time. Because in our world, there is violence. People rob and they kill and destroy in this world. And they rob and kill and destroy, seeking to impose their will on us or seeking to victimize us out of their own brokenness. We've seen examples of that in this very past week. We live in the shadow of violence. And we live in the shadow of false gods. And so living in the shadows of empire and violence and false gods, Like the people of the first century, we live in the shadow of the sanctuary of Pan. But you see, Jesus is teaching us here that disciples rely on his power to storm the gates of hell. And to understand what he means by storming the gates of hell, we have to turn back to God's story from creation to conclusion. It's told in five chapters, and we need to focus on chapter four, the church, because it tells us what it means to storm the gates of hell. In the drawing that I've shown you of God's story from creation to conclusion, in chapter 4 of the church, there are two arrows, one coming down from the cross and one going up toward the cross. Now, the arrow coming down from the cross symbolizes the fact that when we become followers of Jesus, God fills us with his Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for him seals in us our salvation. God's Holy Spirit begins the process of sanctifying us, of making us holy. And God's Holy Spirit gives us a calling and gives us gifts for doing ministry and for serving him. And God sends us out into the world to do ministry in his name. That's the down arrow in chapter four. It reminds us that we are sent out in the power of the risen Christ to serve in this world, to confront empires, to confront violence, to confront false gods. And the up arrow reminds us that we bring the glory to God. We live holy lives for him. We make new disciples for him. We shape the world for him. We bring him honor and glory as he has sent us out. That's what it means that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, storm the gates of hell together because we don't live a purely private faith and rely on our own power. Disciples of Jesus Christ live publicly and rely on his power to live publicly in his name. So disciples know who Jesus is and disciples rely on Jesus's power. And then we find that disciples do what Jesus wants them to do. Disciples do what Jesus wants them to do, because as we continue, we find in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 16 that Jesus is giving Simon some surprising amounts of authority. Verses 19 and 20 continue, Jesus speaking again, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So now as Jesus speaks here about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he implies that eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance. As he uses the image of a key, the key image implies that there is a door that that key can unlock and that door will be open, or that key can lock the door and that door will be closed. 
And Jesus is speaking in some ways about the doors to eternal life and eternal death. He's speaking about a key that ultimately and fundamentally belongs to him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. In that verse, Jesus himself says, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. But here, he is delegating some of that authority to Peter. But he's not giving it to Peter personally. He's giving it through Peter to the church. And what he's indicating is that there is some degree to which the church is responsible for eternal life and eternal death for people. And whatever that means in eternity, and whatever that implies about what happens at the end of time, there is a critically important thing for us to grasp about here and now. Because this possession of the key implies that when we turn a lock one way, we open the door for people to eternal life. And when we turn it a different way, we close the door to eternal life for them. Which implies that we need to embrace and understand our mission. Because whatever this implies about eternity, it reminds us that it is critically important that we open doors for people to follow Christ and accept eternal life here and now. These keys remind us of the critical importance of God's mission. Now then, look what Jesus goes on to say. He goes on to say that we are binding and loosing, which imply that we know a difference between right and wrong. You see, binding and loosing is a term that comes from the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, it has to do with the way that we interpret the law. We have the ability to restrict certain things and allow certain things based on our understanding of the law. And Jesus is once again delegating some of this ability to understand the difference between right and wrong, not simply to Peter, but to the church itself. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what he's saying here is that there is some sense in which in this era, we understand and grasp the difference between right and wrong. And having understood the difference between right and wrong through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the responsibility to live it. We have the responsibility to live it. You see, what we're getting a picture of here is the disciples do what Jesus wants them to do. And it begins with the fact that disciples obey Jesus. You see, when we know what it is that Jesus wants us to do, we do it. When we know what it is that Jesus wants us not to do, we don't do it. Which means that our faith in Jesus Christ as disciples is supposed to change everything about our lives. Everything about our days. Everything about the way that we work, everything about the way we organize our homes, everything about the way that we spend our finances and even think about our future. To live as disciples of Jesus Christ is also supposed to change the world around us as well, more and more into the image of the kingdom of God. Disciples obey Jesus. On top of that, disciples multiply disciples of Jesus. You see, we are given the ability to embrace God's mission to save a people for himself now. It means that that possessing the keys means that we are meant to open the key, 
open the door and throw the gates of heaven open wide now. God is sending us out on mission to this world. He's commanding us to go storm the gates of hell, to knock the gates of hell down and depopulate hell before eternity comes. Disciples multiply disciples of Jesus. That's what we do. So where does this leave us today? I think it leaves us with one simple, straightforward call, and that is be a disciple. Be a disciple. Here's the blunt truth. We've tried everything else. Let's be honest with one another. For decades now, the church in North America has been in retreat. We've been in retreat in absolute numbers. We've been in retreat as a percentage of the population. We have been in retreat in terms of our ability to influence the public realm and public discourse. We're in retreat in terms of our credibility in the culture. The church in North America has been in retreat for decades. And we've tried everything, haven't we? We've held rallies. We've we've had educational events. We've built colleges. We've sent out buses. We've mailed flyers. We've built social media pages. We've held concerts. We've done smoke and laser shows. I was in a church one time, and they were giving away a car at the end of the service to get people to come. We've tried everything except making and multiplying disciples. It turns out that making and multiplying disciples is Jesus' plan. Making and multiplying disciples was Jesus' plan during his earthly ministry. That's what he did with his followers. Making and multiplying disciples is what Jesus intended when he said, you're going to storm the gates of hell. That's how we storm the gates of hell. Making and multiplying disciples is what grew the church catalytically in the book of Acts. Making and multiplying disciples is what is expanding the church where it is expanding in the world right now, in South Asia, in Africa, and South America. Making and multiplying disciples is what gets that done. Making and multiplying disciples is Jesus' plan for the church, and making and multiplying disciples is Valley's plan for the church. We need to make and multiply disciples together. And that starts with us being disciples. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about this more. Next week, I want to talk about engage, which is what we can do to become disciples of Jesus ourselves. There are things that we can do to grow as disciples of Jesus ourselves, and I want to talk about those together next week. And then the next week, I want to talk about the concept of cultivate, because there are things that we can do for one another as a congregation to encourage one another in growing as disciples of Jesus. And I want to talk about that the following weekend. Making and multiplying disciples of Jesus is Jesus' plan for the church, and it's Jesus' plan for Valley. But I'm going to be blunt with you today. It took me a long time to come to this conclusion. And to come to it, God had to change my heart. Because when I got into ministry decades ago now, when I got into ministry, I was deeply in love with the church. 
I wanted to see the church thrive. And frankly, my definition of disciple in the early days of my ministry was someone who went to church a lot and participated in everything. And it took pretty near a decade for God to break my heart on that topic and help me realize that I loved the church more than I loved him. And to cause me to fall deeply in love with him and realize that disciples must love him. And then, it's interesting, I spent a decade with that picture in my mind of a disciple. My picture of a disciple was someone who loved God and who engaged in spiritual practices and disciplines on a regular basis, and those disciplines fueled our love for God. And and there is a truth to that, and yet, at the same time, God had to break my heart and, and help me to realize that while I loved him, I didn't love the people he loved the way that he loved them. And he had to help me love his mission to save his people as much as I loved him. And I finally began to understand what it means truly to be a disciple of Jesus. As disciples, we love the church. Yes, we love the church. As disciples, we love God. We love God above all things. And as disciples, we love his people. We love his mission and, and we live public lives for him, and we shape the world around us for him, and we make and we multiply more disciples of Jesus for him. That's what it is to be a disciple. So are we Christians, or are we disciples? Let's know who Jesus is and confess it publicly. Let's rely on Jesus' power and let's live publicly as disciples of Jesus. Let's let our faith change every aspect of how we live our lives personally. And let's let our faith propel us to change the world around us and to make and multiply more disciples for Jesus. Let's be disciples. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon Podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.